You're listening to Thunder Quack Straight Podcast Network. Straight up to harassment, Tabitha. Straight up to harassment, Tabitha. Which? Straight up Hello, to harassment. Hello, Riverdale gang. Welcome back to, to this critical commentary watch-long podcast Tabitha. recorded here on the unceded territories Tabitha. of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, where much of Riverdale is filmed. Uh, I am your host today, Ryan. Just me... Um, happy, happy to report that baby Noah, Chloe's baby Noah, is thriving and adorable and, um, feeding steadily, and, uh, it's a baby, y'all. It's really cute. Um, so I am here alone for our penultimate, penultimate episode. Um, the second last episode of the second last season. Uh, weird, weird niche. We don't often know it's the penultimate, penultimate, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, we are into the Book of Revelations, which is where they've been driving us, guiding us, pointing us, bringing us for a while now. And I'm unsurprised, I'm delighted, I am, um, overall I enjoyed this episode. It was bringing, bringing the world building together in a really fun way for me. Um, and continued to tell, uh, the same bright, dark ridiculous, dramatic story, um, with a heck of a twist, uh, a, not, not a twist, an amplification of stakes at the end that is, um, above and beyond, I think, what the show has, has dared risk before, which is neat, and it fits the genre, it fits the superhero horror genre. Um, I am somewhat spoiled today from binge-watching an entire season of Umbrella Academy, um, I quite liked it also. And Umbrella Academy is a fine, um, it's a B-list television show. And they know it, and they work it fantastically with, uh, and they, like, it's a heightened cult show. I really feel like, um, Umbrella Academy is a, is a, a contemporary example of exactly what Riverdale is parodying in this season and this arc. Um, so I've got a little bit of stakes whiplash, um, because people die a lot more frequently in Umbrella Academy, <laughs> like a lot, um, than they do in Riverdale. So, um, that last beat, the plague of the firstborn, and the, the full and brutal execution of it, um, yeah, I, I was watching the, um, the homage to Umbrella Academy until I got to that very end, and we got the real oomph. They, um, they went to the dark and scary place, which is neat. Um, and I'm sure they'll resolve it. I'm sure everything's fine. I'm sure some people aren't dead. Sabrina is going to come wake everyone up. They're going to bury them in the dirt. Um, it's great. And it's it's also exactly what we wanted and expected from Sabrina, I think, certainly uh, on this show, um, that she's not just going to be a cameo, but clearly is the plot crux, is... Um, is a MacGuffin, is a, a secret canon. Um, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for what is queued up to be a really lovely um, final wrap-up uh, for the superhero season. Um, which does get me thinking forward to what next year is, but I've learned not to make predictions or guesses in Riverdale. Um, certainly not between seasons. There, I, I got nothing. So um, I'm going to focus on the here and now. Biblical. Uh... I suppose I'm ready to jump in, gang. If you want to queue up your television watching 
options, alternatives, choices to episode 18. Biblical. We're going to start together in three, two, one. Ba-doom-ba. So, I'm delighted to see, um, delighted? I don't know. I'm seeing Aguirre Sakasa coming up to one of his core fetishes as an artist. Um, and, and I use fetish not in the sexual sense, though it's vaguely a reference. It's the artistic philosophical sense of, um, the, the recurrent things that an artist may dig into again and again and again across mediums, across projects, across their career. Um, and it's you know, by no means untrodden territory. The Book of Revelations is among the oldest literary. You know that. Um, but it's, it's nice to see him, and I, I, I speak as if he doesn't have a fantastic team and two writing partners, but it's nice to see a... Um, an episode that, that really leans into the thesis statement of this Catholic genre reference. A few a few directions over, a few directions in. Um, I, I, I'm just following along by the skin of my teeth uh, because I've got a confirmation level education, uh, even though I really only went to confirmation class because there was a cute boy. So take that what you will, Pope. Um, yeah. I've been... Uh, Let's engage back in with what's happening on screen here um, with Archie and Betty. And um, a very light, a, a lighter um, reconciliation with existence than, um, than we could have felt yesterday. With these two especially, with Betty and Archie, I think the weight of Trash Bag Killer's absence um, plays heavy. Um, they were so ominously fine, this episode. Great, great clue that everyone's going to be sad. Everyone was so happy in their couples romantically this episode. It was a great sequence. So Jughead is finally writing Rivervale. Or rewriting Rivervale. Um, clearly, we're, we're not mincing around. We're on La Llorona. La Llorona. This, uh, at the beginning, we cycle through Jugheads and Jugheads and Jugheads to be caught at the end by um, Jughead and Jughead. I, again, or tied back to Rivervale, I was so baffled how there was going to be any connection between these universes, how they were going to tie that whole first act and arc back into this. Um, Jughead's multidimensional creative writing powers was not what I would have guessed, but I'm game. Um, that said, Jughead spends this whole episode in the bunker processing the necessary plot points to tell us as the audience that, yes, this is the connection that you think you're getting. It's interesting. Um, meanwhile, Plagues. Uh, so Plagues are... It's an old device. Um... And I rather enjoyed how directly literal it was with frogs, with locusts, with a great deal of things, um, until it was interpreted with a flair for most damage in the final plague. Um, but up till then, 
Percival, and, and, and in much of Percival's actions, he's, he's been winning, he's been playing, he's been fighting, but he's been sitting and chanting. It's been, um, it's been very hands-off. Um, and it's had air of mystery and silliness, and uh, I, this is very much gloves off, which tracks for the positioning of the season. I'm really here for Veronica's arc coming up at the end of this season. Um, Veron, not necessarily this, this very specific moment where she uh, feels bad about planning someone's wedding. That's an extraordinary skill, event management. Um, and uh, But I can see why uh, they've set up what she's missing with Reggie, with several episodes of talking about dealing with uh, being single and what that means for her, what she wants from life. Um, I like that this is where we're going with Veronica. Right up to her asking Tabitha, do I end up with Archie? Which, okay, sure. I guess you had to. I guess you had to, Archie Comics. You are beholden to your own rules, and I must respect that. Including the rule of Betty and Veronica and Archie in a, a V. It's not a triangle, it's a V. No matter how much they teased us, and that's not what we're going. Veronica and Betty, not the most interesting queerness they can pull pull on us. Britta gets a lot of featuring in, the, in this episode, which is interesting as well. Um, cues her up, interestingly, to be a presence in the final episode for me. Um, after really putting her on the shelf for the back half of this season, um, it's it's nice and neat um, narratively how this episode picks up these um, these threads and starts tying them together. Um, I was very satisfied with the, the, the storytelling here, on, on the whole. So, good job, Kevin. Good try. I'm here for Kevin's redemption arc. I'm here for Kevin being forgiven. I'm so very here for that. Um, Kevin being the wedding singer at his... At that wedding... It's a stretch, but I'll take it. It's Riverdale. Um, yeah. Just imagine dancing to your ex at your wedding. Just, ah. Uh, okay. So Percival's menace level um, amps once again in this. Um, we've had some great um, moments uh, rooted in labor fight, in collective action versus... versus um, overwhelming coercion, overwhelming domination and power. Um, but we're, we're in a cult, maybe this is the Umbrella Academy talking again, but we're, we're in this episode in a, a slow motion apocalypse. We are in a sequence of plagues, um, biblically, the, the sequence given by, um, the Christian God to, um, and Jewish Yahweh, but we're really in Christian interpretation space here. Um, I'll double back to that. <laughs> um, the plagues... The, the freeing of the people from slavery in Egypt is our classic plague. Um, we are seeing Book of Revelations using plague. Um, which is interesting. We're seeing the Harlot of Babylon, um, which is a... I appreciate their word choice. There are a lot of other um, words often used in that in translating that. Um, 
but these these Book of Revelations images, um, I I really I can't say it's not a Jewish interpretation, but this is this is a real real Catholic take. This is a real Christian lens take on Book of Revelations prophecy, and um, sort of this literal literary li the, the literacy. Nope, the literality, the literalness of um, of conflict of prophecy um, in a lot of Christian interpretations. <sighs> Come on, Tony. I know you're dead, but maybe this has got to be Tony. This has got to be Tony's power. La Llorona is on my screen now. It's for Tony, right? Tony's not dead. Everyone's dead. But it's fine when, every, when everyone's dead, you know that no one's dead. It's a great rule. At least when we're not in, you know, closing season or Deep Space Nine. <sighs> the vanishing stories. There is... There is so many ways to go with this. Um, I am very intrigued to see if Jughead is creating. If, if his stories are being used to create a river veil. Or if a beat of Jughead's power is, um, this world's Jughead's power is going to, is about pull, reaching across dimensions and cells into that other version and pulling out components. Um, I want to guess that this is our origin world. Um, whatever happened in Rivervale... Um, that first fragment of the crazy Hiram bomb, the un the unfollowable plot twist, um, the the broken story rule, that did originate in in Riverdale Prime, in the in the original iteration, or the the fifth iteration, as genres go and seasons go. Seven. There were a few double genre seasons. Yeah. Um, Veronica and Tabitha's friends. I'm very game for this. I have really enjoyed these two women um, as business partners, um, as uh, being pitted against each other and working together on it. Um, and this is this is um, another important beat, I think, in in establishing Tabitha as one of our core members of the Riverdale team of the cast of. Building these one-on-one -on -one relationships, I think, is always so important to introducing uh, introducing lead characters and building out your ensemble cast uh, successfully. Um, there is such a difference between Heather, as for example, and um, everything we have ever seen about Tony, Fangs, etc. When we look back a few seasons before Tony and Fangs joined A-Plot... Um, I think you you can see a real difference. Uh, it's stark later in the dance scene, a very specific lighting example, when Britta is dancing with her girlfriend? With with a girl who... It, great. With, with that girl. There is hard lighting on Britta, and there is dull lighting on her girlfriend. And it's... Um, I don't think I've ever quite seen a shot that was so bang on exactly the the this is where you this is a lead character look at them this is a supporting character don't look at them it's um it's a very intentional design i think plague of bugs um these plagues so conveniently just they're these are lovely narratively convenient plagues 
And Percival is clearly trafficking in um, literalism. <laughs> Literary literalism. I'm back to that uh, tongue twistery. The um, use of metaphor for magic, which is, again, a, a, a neat convention on screen. Um, a neat convention in biblical storytelling, in this very particular type of storytelling. And, um, you know, there's, there's, these are such old stories that they've percolated, um, obviously, and reinterpreted and grown in quite fabulous ways. And one of my favorite things about, um, about looking at history is, um, that in every era you get these novel takes on these old stories, uh, and they were actually quite novel for the time, or a, a culmination of um, of the pop culture of the time, or sometimes an, you know, a new step to a story. Um, but now, looking back at several thousand years of, of a story's history, we got to trace... Um, this isn't what the story was 2,000 years ago, exactly. We have all sorts of new images that are all in the context of their era. We have, you know, the, 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 the book Betty looks at, this harlot of Babylon image, that this is, there's a mythology with age to this when you're looking, looking at and interpreting um, these historical reads. I'm probably stretching a little bit, largely because I'm just thrilled to see Babylon mentioned. Um, big Mesopotamian history kick at the moment. The world's so old and cool, everyone. It's so old and cool. Good move, Cheryl. Um, obviously it doesn't work. Obviously. Um, but I like that she just goes for it. Uh, <laughs> like, really, we could have done this earlier. I'm... Um, <laughs> if they were a little bit more hardcore, we would have done this earlier. But, um, we're not Umbrella Academy. Not here. Though I'm definitely watching the 10th episode of the third season after this. <laughs> so Nana has a rough go. My goodness. Um, it's hilariously on genre that Nana survives that. And it's, I think, very clever to then lead with her death. Again. Um... The extra up and down, the extra spike, and the the feelings we've already been have activated around the character, who she is in Cheryl's life and everyone's life. Um, yeah, it's. I like the structure of this episode's storytelling. There's a lot of um, of hidden traps popping off. Um, it's a big old payoff episode, and then Veronica sings "Ladies Who Lunch," which great. Um, this is a lovely number. Um, I think more, uh, more a stand-up musical number than, than Kevin's in world. Uh, though that was a, that was a fine number, but this is clearly a Veronica vehicle number. Yeah. As the, as the stage lights kick on and she's lit in a, in a bright pale blue spot, um, <clears throat> that somehow exists in the gym. I love how there's theater lighting in the gym. Uh, the, the pops, the pops gym, yeah. Beautiful. It's all beautiful. I guess they might have brought the White Worms kit. Okay. Anyway, sure. Of course they have the equipment, because the crews filming them have the equipment. But anyway. Suspending my disbelief. Um, 
this is an interesting choice for Camila Mendez, um, and it'll, it, I think, is another tick in my, my theory that she is um, angling towards a, um, a music-inclusive career post-Riverdale, that she is um, more, than, more than Lily Reinhardt, uh, more than Madeline Petsch, presenting herself as a, um, as a viable musical theater performer, as a viable um, lead singer. Uh, who now has quite a quite a repertoire of of interpretations um, under her belt, professionally recorded, filmed, told. Um, I not to not to speak down of anyone on the show and their lovely work, but I do feel like Camila Mendez. Um, they have given her particular focus this season, last week season. They've given her a lot of numbers. I really should do the math and see how many people sing how much. But we've been so spotlit on Veronica. And um, in a season where we are hearing Veronica's story of, of um, single independent discovery and power uh, coming into her own strength, uh, I think it's very intentional. I, I think um, it, it's thematically correct that she is this big, the big, big musical star and belt. Um, but also, yeah, for her career after the fact, uh, this woman is absolutely gearing up to be hireable in a, like, Les Mis adaptation, but obviously not that, because they did that, and that was a question mark. Oh my god, what good shows do they have left to adapt to films. Spongebob Squarepants the Musical. I'm holding up for Spongebob Squarepants the Musical. If you haven't heard it, do yourself a favor. It's fabulous. Yes, it's a full Broadway musical. Yes, it's real licensed Spongebob. Anyway, B&V continue to be good friends. Um, good friends don't just talk about the problem at hand. That's something that I think they do really well with these two. They do, they, they're problem-solving together, but they are friends, and they are saying things and observing things, and, and they're being friends adjacent to their team problem-solving. B&V forever. Yeah, this is a good friendship. Super not a triangle. Nope. So, Nana was engulfed in flames, shockingly is alive. I assume because Heather has healing magic powers being necromancer. <laughs> this is so we're about halfway point in this episode. Um, I love this one two punch of stakes escalation. Nana burning is a big deal. Nana being injured is a big deal. Nana presumably dying. Because that's what I think we are absolutely meant to think while she's burning in her wheelchair. Um, is a big deal. And then we pull it back down and we pull it back into the the same range and frame of Riverdale. Of, this, of the season and rules so far. Which again is just a fabulous setup for that last beat of mass death. Yeah, that's Riverdale is at its mass, is, is at its mass death era. Being narratively viable wild. But then again, they did introduce ghost trains and witnesses from the beyond who died in 
weird accidents that pops. Those poor people, like, if I, like, that woman, the, the woman working at Pops totally died in a workplace accident. Um, what a horrible purgatory to now be the dark witnesses to the, these eldritch forces in motion. Crappy job. Not worth the minimum wage remotely. Okay, so we bring Kevin back into the fold, finally. Um, and I think they've given him time to breathe a little bit, to um, get back into a reasonable state of existence. Um, I enjoyed Kevin this season overall. Jughead, you shouldn't have eaten the fairy food. Don't eat the fairy food, you idiot. You're hallucinating food. That's not, that's not, that's not. But okay, Jughead's on the the crazy train. And he's signed up and committed. Now, I wonder where we're at in Kevin escaping and sourcing in this episode. He's clearly self-aware. He's clear, clearly um, working with Percival. He's clearly walking back the, the influenced bad choices he made around this custody suit. Um... I am wondering if and when and how we will revisit Kevin's culpability and choices. Um, and that's a real question for me too as a viewer. I don't know how much Kevin is culpable in his choices yet. Um, we've been we've been um, circling around this question of how much is Percival making people do things versus how much is Percival um, utilizing existing levers, existing biases, existing passions and hates. Um, and I do hope we get an answer because I don't think Kevin is 100% in the clear at all, at all, at all, at all, at all, um, despite his very good efforts this episode. Okay, meanwhile, yes, uh, let's get back to the logistics of Strikes and Union 101. Um, a fantastic ex historical example I look to is the, um, the coal miner strikes in, uh, Wales and England in the 1970s, um, as well as Appalachian strikes in the early 20th century. Um, really starving out these workers is the strategy often applied, especially when violence, uh, like we've seen in past union episodes, uh, doesn't work. Um, pulling back benefits, dangling details. We're seeing this right now in Starbucks's unionization process. Um, capitalizing on the horrible things in the world. Um, there are uh, anti-union major corporations who are dangling essential health care funding and travel. Uh, let's, okay, uh, abortion services and reproductive health care services. Uh, no need to be subtle. Yeah, we're all in this world. Ah, um, and are dangling it as union-breaking uh, tools. So just in case you were thinking historical evil and a campy ancient Americana story, super relevant to literally Starbucks and Target and Walmart and most of your retail experiences and interactions, but also exceptionally, especially Amazon. Uh, that's my union rant at the moment. Uh, <laughs> um, Archie should really smush Purcell's head right now. I'm sure there's a reason he doesn't. We've definitely amped up the stakes and the power to a point where I, I believe that he doesn't, but I really want Archie to just smush Purcell's head in that moment. Just smush. Nice and clean. 
Hello, High Priestess Cheryl, Lady of the Sacrifice. I am delighted that you are what visits Jughead here. Um, God. I'm still, I, I, I'm still not over how everyone in that world was so cool with sacrificing Archie. Just what rules were slightly different in that world? How did that work? What was changed that everyone was so game for this? Ah. Ah. Kevin gets a little espionage and blows his cover immediately. Cool, cool, cool. I'm looking for you in your cabinet. This man is a bad liar. This man is a drama teacher. This man is a cop. Oh yeah, Kevin's still a cop. Okay, you're not forgiven, buddy. Sorry. You're you're still you're still a cop. I don't care if you're unmind controlled from the weird custody battle. <clears throat> Spiraling again. But Kevin Inversible. This is so sloppy. So sloppy, so sloppy. Um But I guess Kevin's not a lead player in this battle. It's, uh, uh, we have known Kevin is not a lead. We've always known Kevin is not a lead. I've always known Kevin is not a lead. And, um, it's sometimes easier to throw your supporting characters through these, um, moral loops because you don't necessarily have to sit with them in the, the, the fine detail moments of their redemption and processing. Main characters should usually, usually have some, reflection on their actions uh, and some direct consequences. Um, yeah, I'm again reminded of um, the Actors in Heartstopper, a lovely young YA, YA TV show on Netflix right now, commenting on how when, growing up with Riverdale, they had side characters like Kevin Keller, not leads. Um, Kevin is still not a lewd. Hi, Archie Jesus. I see you. That is so an Archie Jesus. We're we're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the Archie Jesusery. It's uh it's a tone. And Jughead's Jughead's um biblical reading interpretation of all this darkness. Uh Plague of Darkness. I forgot this one. I haven't watched uh Prince of Egypt in a long time. Let's all be real. Many of for most of us in the English speaking world who aren't Jewish, Prince of Egypt was a uh, massive introduction to a lot of really important cultural stories. Uh, really important if you're if you're paying attention to that thing. Not the be all and end all. And Kevin is an agent. So we're again we're laying laying in heavy 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 symbolism, Babylon, um, Spanish Inquisition, times of religious extremity and violence and persecution, of religiously driven violence, um, direct identifiable, familiar examples to an English-speaking audience with European history background. Um, it's what we are lining up here. This was an interesting move from Betty. I um, am not 100% sure what she was trying to do by rattling this cage, but she sure rattles it. Um, and this is, this is a little, this is new, I think. Betty's walked into, into fire before. Betty's walked into stupid situations knowingly before. Um, and it's been the right thing to do knowingly before. But I'm, I'm really delighted to see Betty, you know, now having defeated her nemesis, at least for this season, I assume, um, 
ready to walk into the battlefield and just just kick the tires. Um, yeah. So the harlot of Babylon, um, as a metaphor, is I believe it is the um, the uh, fall into sin person or state, the icon, the icon of the um, of uh, the decadent, the decadent person who has betrayed God and who will face God's wrath um, in the coming times. This, of course, is from a, a literary tradition that was writing after Babylon, after, uh, and really coming together and crystallizing after the Hittites fell and Babylon fell, after two or three great civilizations and ancient civilizations whose um, records and ruins still exist today, and so certainly existed them. then. Um, as a as a reflection on the history and the falling of these cities, and in, in saying there's a harlot of Babylon, um, we are at a biblical end times of human decay. It's time for Noah's flood, if you will. Um, hmm. But also, the harlot of Babylon is used to describe a place, a capital city of of a, of a heathen state, a capital city of a sin-laden uh, place. Um, the, the city is the state, is the people, is the, is the land, is the woman, this one woman who is the Christian icon of sin. Funny that, tracing all that back. Ugh. Um, Veronica's still right here. Just shake him down and shoot him. Yeah. So, this little, wicked little town, um, is itself quite possibly, quite probably, the, the harlot of Babylon, I think, in this, in this dynamic and scenario. As much as Betty is putting herself forward and seeing that uh, in this stolen material, this, this little reference material. I am excited to see how, it, how this mythology comes together um, next week, because there's a, there's a... The knot is tightening, the, the payoff is coming, coming, the confetti is popping, um, and we're, we're gonna see what the, the boom is like, what the pop is like. We're gonna, we're gonna see, um, how this story looks when they're done telling it. It's, uh, it's a pretty critical moment, right? As it all comes together that they've been building this world. And all the more when we know that we are going to walk right off the edge of this season and season seven, whatever it is, whatever it is, is not going to be this world and is not going to be this rules. And it will be these people, these names, these roles, but they are going to be in an entirely different world next season. Um, not just because of how deeply they've, they've you know, carved into the, the immutable realities of this one, not only the consequences of all the deaths. But, um, this is what Riverdale does. This is their, this is their vibe. Um, this is what they've done every season. So, we really are done with this story next, uh, episode. July 11th. Not, uh, two-ish weeks? Three? Something. Two-ish weeks. Something like that. See, y'all should have done this months ago, before he had all the Inquisition weapons. Blah. And though it came to pass. It's funny. A lot of what we <laughs> a lot of what we read as biblical language. 
It's just like a couple key takeaways from grammar 400 years ago. I read a hilarious short uh, letter to the editor from about 300 years ago decrying the singular use of you. Um, that thou is the, the proper term and that any classy person would not. Uh, yeah, anyway, as we talked about pronouns and whatnot. It's a long conversation and there's always been people who don't get it willfully. Oh, I'm spiraling, gang. The politics of the world are seeping in on my brain and poisoning me. But that happens to us all. Let me focus back on the dinner, the, the dark sugar trash. Um, Tony, this is a weird olive leaf. I, I'm reveling in Tony's joy this episode, even knowing she is going to fall dead at the end. Setting that aside, I am reveling in Tony and Fangs's joy. Um, front and center and clear and strong. Um, they get a lovely wedding. This is this is much of the complexity and the, the ups and downs that I have wanted. This fulfills a lot of, of the asks I feel like we've made for these characters, for their um, greater engagement and investment and meaning and impact for them individually, their stories. I still kind of see Fangs as part of Tony's story, but that may be just my watching from season one bias still. I'm not sure. Actually, I don't think Fangs is, is a serious lead. No, what am I saying? I should really look up those facts as I guesstimate. But uh, yeah, we have a sweet wedding. We have a sweet, happy wedding. Again, the penultimate episode of uh, Umbrella Academy. So many parallels. They filmed these at the same time. They weren't ripping each other off. They're just drawing in the same zeitgeist. Have I recommended enough how you that you watch Umbrella Academy season three? If you are big on the um, trash fire superhero comedy dark comedy disaster game, um, yeah, I think those characters know they're in a comic book almost as much as the Archie comic characters do, actually. So I've spoken over the vows because I'm a little bit bored by a wedding, uh, but I'm glad that. That's the thing, isn't it? Happiness is not necessarily stimulating to watch. But this is what I want for Tony. It's a constant conflict, right? I want Tony on the screen, but why is Tony on the screen if there's no conflict? But I don't want Tony to have conflict. <sighs> I like that he uses a plague to get out. Um, it aligns with the other very um, situational applications of his plagues. And... Um, also aligns with the the, um, the the presentation of Percival as the caster of plagues. Um, of course, in all of this mythology and all of this story we're building on, there is a all-powerful god figure at the source of this. Um, and there's moral ambiguity and questions and challenge and harshness and all of that in the in the store in the original tale. Um, but we, the, the plagues were from God in the original story. And in, in our, and in many contemporary iterations, um, possibly even in some philosophical iterations of the original story, um, the plagues are brought about by actions, by Percival's actions, um, whether it's magic or mechanism or, or importing a box of locusts, we see it. Okay, this is this is Britta and her girlfriend. Um, watch how they're lit. We 
our our eye is brought to Britta just differently. Not just the camera focus. Um, just such a good example with a young character who's been such a good example of so many visual, um, so many language, uh, storytelling language beats in Riverdale. Percival is getting scary and threatening again. Yeah, because he's calling down these plagues of God, question mark. Um, what does it say that... Well, I suppose one thing it says is maybe Percival is supposed to be God. Um, we've speculated that Percival is the devil, frequently. Sabrina's coming for our ultimate episode, so point towards that, I would say. Um, but yeah, it's supposedly God who called the plagues down. That's the source material. So we're... Whatever we're doing, it is an intentional relation to that source material. Um, I can't guess Riverdale, but I can see the cool levers and gears and cogs that you are setting to spin. This was a really fantastic uh, sequence, I felt. Um, right from the first sweeping walk-in, that, that lovely um, flipping camera shot following Percival. And then this really violent murder that is a few steps less campy than anything, you know, not than anything, than most of what we've seen before. This is um, violence with a character who we've been with for six seasons, um, who we've just been told is fake out dead, who we've had that adrenaline spike in our, our feeling for the character, and then we're revisiting it, and the fake out is complete, and it wasn't fake at all, and this is a pretty big death. And her life leaves. And clearly that red mist is something in Percival's plan. Whether it's gathered life forces or fuel. Or... Uh, notable pen through all these wonderful gay couples at this lovely uh, wedding of two bisexual people. And then we allow one straights. We allow one couple of straights-ish. Oh, Betty's bi, too. Just one straight. One straight. Only one straight per wedding, please. Yes. Your turn to be token. Ha ha! Uh, uh, Veronica and Tabitha are right back into a great dynamic. They've done an exemplary job, I think, with Tabitha. Looking back at the last two seasons, I have really enjoyed um, the full presence of her character. Um... For a character who's only been here for two seasons, I think she's... I know who she is as a watcher. I know not not always how she fits, but I... I increasingly know who she is with each of these characters one-on-one. -on -one. Those one-on-one -on -one partner relationships between friends, between lovers, between exes. Those one-on-one -on -one connections really build up the network. This is a scary death. And it is ominous, and we see the, the, the pacing is fine domino, I think. Um, from Nana Rose to Archie, and we sit in Archie, and we sit with this danger, and we sit with a room full of dying people. What a horrifying, like, what, a, what an absolutely horrible, horrifying thing to happen around you. Just out of the blue, half the people you've known your whole life drop dead. 
fantastic. I, I'm delighted that they went, they went there and they went that far with the stakes and the storytelling. Um, really, really, um, punchy payoff to the, to the level of violence, to the level of danger that they've been building up around both Percival and the, the horror stakes of the Rivervale episodes. Hi, Jughead. Of course it's you. Who the hell else is bringing you your favorite hamburger and stealing your stories? I'm one, I'm, we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see next episode, right? We'll see exactly who this is, which Jughead this is. Um, wild that he watches himself die. Ugh. I, maybe we're going to have River Vale Jughead rolling with the Riverdale gang. That'd be neat. Because this Jughead looks real dead, and that... That's a dead Archie and Fangs and Tony. Dead, 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 dead. Like, real hard dead. And then this room full of devastated grief. I thought they did a fantastic job. Um, yeah. I... I like seeing this whole cast emotionally devastated as a storytelling beat. Um, and powerfully emotionally devastated in ways we immediately understand. They've built, you know, it's a wedding episode. We've built up the love. We've been leaning into the love. These dominoes were quite well set up. Yeah. The panic of one more person we haven't checked on, but no one else is able to muster a movement. Ah! I loves me some grief on TV. I really loves me some grief on TV. Some good, good grief. But of course, Heather has a necromancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. As was foretold by the press releases and totally not leaks, I'm sure. Sabrina Spellman saves the day. Um, I'm excited to see how. Uh, and I'm excited to see how she does that as a big guest presence without overshadowing it. Because we have a lot of characters who are coming to a uh, climactic beat here next week. Um, this is a challenge with ensemble pieces, right? There's so much going on. There's so many moving pieces. And how are we going to do everyone do? Uh, they're, they're due. How are we going to do all these characters? Uh, tell their stories and what they're worth, and what they deserve to see. Um, and a lot of that, I take the happy, happy, happy scenes in this episode, I take it that these are these are thesis statements, and then we're all going to go into the apocalypse, and then we're going to come back in season seven. Whatever that's going to be. All right, gang. I will... S <laughs> you'll hear me. I won't see you, but you'll hear me again in two weeks, um, almost certainly with a, with a, a co-host of some sort, uh, for the penultimate ultimate episode the season not series season finale of riverdale all right king see you then